Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. We're going to be reading the Bible now, so let me invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 25, and we'll be reading the whole chapter. Isaiah chapter 25. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. (coughs) Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in its place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands, and the fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground. To the dust. Hi there, and welcome to the Bible Talks. It's nice to see you. Uh, we're, we're flying through Isaiah, uh, the biggest book in the Bible, if you take out the book of Psalms, uh, and we're flying through at a pretty fast rate. Last week, we're looking at chapters 11 and 12. This week, we're focusing in on chapters 24 and 25. So I'll give you a little bit of an update on what happens in between as we go. Let's pray for God to help us understand His Word, and then we'll dig in and enjoy it together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you. we're thankful to you that you speak through your word and we're thankful that we can take time out from studying all the rest of the things that we study here at uni to study the most important thing, which is what you have said to us in the Bible. Father, please teach us from this word so that we might understand how to live in this world which is haunted by death. Uh, Father, please teach us how to live. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you like judgment... If you like judgment, then the prophecy of Isaiah is the book for you. Uh, There is so much warning of coming judgment in this book. If you like judgment, then I'm tipping that the prophecy of Isaiah will be your happy place. But who could possibly like judgment? 
How could God's judgment ever possibly be a good thing to like? Isn't judgment bad news? Isn't even God's judgment a horrible thing that we should just be scared of and avoid talking about as much as possible? Why are we even looking at this prophecy of Isaiah if there is so much bad news about God's judgment in it? How do you think we should feel about God's judgment? Should you be down on it? Should you be ashamed of it? Should you cancel God because of it? Let's try to work this out today as we look again at this beautiful prophecy of Isaiah. We're at point one, God will judge the sin of the world. And last week, as I said, we looked at chapters 11 and 12 and we saw God speaking through the prophet Isaiah to warn his people, the people of Israel and the people of Judah and the nations surrounding them that his judgment was coming. But we didn't just see this promise of judgment. We also saw promises of peace and justice on the other side of God's justice, uh, judgment, sorry. And as we move on from those chapters further through the book of Isaiah, you know, we keep coming across wave upon wave of judgment that God speaks against both his chosen people, the people of Israel and Judah, and all the nations around them as well. And the prophecy of Isaiah keeps reminding us that God takes sin seriously. And God will judge sin seriously. So let me take you on a flying tour of the chapters that speak about God's judgment. Um, I'm going to start from chapter 15 where a new series of, uh, of chapters begins. If you don't want to just flick through, you'll be able to see even from the headings what we're doing here. Chapter 15 begins a series of oracles that speak of God's judgment against a number of different nations in the region around Israel. In chapters 15 and 16, it's aimed at Moab. In chapter 17, it's Damascus and the Samaritans in the firing line. In chapter 18, it's Cush. We now uh, call the area of Cush Sudan, actually. And in chapter 19, still in Africa, it's Egypt. In 20, it's Egypt again and Cush again. Then in chapters 21 and 22, it's Babylon. And finally, in chapter 23, the last oracle is about Tyre and Sidon. They are the great cities of the Philistine nation. And the thing that seems to unite all of these different nations is that they were all potential or actual allies of Judah in anti-Assyrian alliances. Now remember Assyria, they're the big guy on the block. They're the superpower in the neighbourhood at the time when the first half of this book of Isaiah is being written. So all these nations from chapter 15 to chapter 23 are nations that Israel and Judah were tempted to rely upon for salvation alliances protecting them from the fearsome fearsome Assyrian army. But the Lord of all the nations will have none of that. These nations will not be Israel's saviour. These nations are under the same judgment as the people of Israel. That's what the oracles in these chapters keep reminding us. As we move into our passage today, we move from this collection of oracles aimed at all of the individual nations that Israel might have relied upon against Assyria. And, well, we move into something even bigger. Have a look at chapter 24, verse 1. 
chapter 24, verse 1. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. As we move into chapter 24, we realize the judgment that God is speaking about in, in this book is not just going to be limited to Israel and her allies. Chapter 24 speaks about judgment that empties the whole earth. The Lord of the nations is going to judge all of the nations. And this chapter, therefore, is speaking about a day of judgment coming upon all the earth. And no one will be immune from this comprehensive day of judgment. Look at verses 2 and 3. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. This is comprehensive judgment. It will come upon the rich and the poor, the slave and the master, the buyer and the seller. The wealthy won't be able to buy their way out of this coming judgment and the poor won't be able to beg their way out of God's coming judgment. But you might be wondering why everyone, everyone in the whole world is caught up in this comprehensive judgment of God. And then the answer comes as we move into verses 4 to 6 and Isaiah uses imagery that takes us right back to the creation of the world. The creation accounts that we have in Genesis 1 to 3 of our Bibles. See if you can spot the uh, Genesis imagery in these verses as I read to you from verses 4 to 6. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. Did you see any of the creation images, any of the Genesis creation images as we read through those verses? Do you want to have another look? With the person next to you, why don't you take a quick look? Here's the question I'd love you to think about. What are the Genesis creation images in these verses? Take 30 seconds with the person next to you and see what they think. Go for it. Okay, did you spot a few? How many did you get? Let's have a think about it. The obvious image, perhaps the one that you got, is the curse, isn't it? The obvious one is the curse. Remember back to that first human rebellion when Adam and Eve chose not to entrust themselves just to the good that God had assigned for them, but instead they rebelled and chose to decide good and evil for themselves? Remember that God responded by cursing the serpent and cursing the ground so that it would be frustrated in producing food. Can you see why Isaiah in verse 6 says that a curse devours the earth? And in the very next line, God says that the earth's inhabitants, that's, well, people and maybe animals as well, they suffer for their guilt, human guilt. This is Genesis creation language. Isaiah is using that first original sin to explain why God's judgment is coming upon all the earth. 
But there's one more little creation image in there that you might not have noticed. It's there at the end of verse 5. The eternal covenant. Now when you think about covenants in the Bible, you might think about the law covenant of the Old Testament given by God through Moses to Old Testament Israel. Or maybe you think about the new covenant established by Jesus' blood shed at the cross. But here is another covenant that Isaiah calls an eternal covenant. This eternal covenant, it cannot be the law covenant of Moses because Galatians 3, you can read it in your own time, Galatians 3 tells us that law covenant was not eternal. It was only to be in effect until the coming of Jesus. Jesus replaces the law covenant with the new covenant in his blood. The law covenant is not eternal. I think the eternal covenant being spoken about here is another creation image. It is a covenant between the creator and the people he has created. It's an implied covenant, implied by the very act of creation itself. This covenant began in Genesis 1 with the creation of humanity and it will last for all eternity. God, the creator, has committed himself to the humans that he has created. And the humans of God's creation should have committed themselves to their creator God. But therein lies the problem. God has a day of judgment for all the earth because all humans have followed our first ancestors into rebellion against the God who created us. And as Isaiah paints the picture of what this comprehensive judgment across all of the earth will be like, the first images that he uses, well, they're about the party being over. Let's keep, uh, let's keep reading. Verses 7 to 13. The vine, sorry, the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations." as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They're vivid images. They're painting a picture for you of joy taken away. They speak of the morning after the party, uh, perhaps a little bit like this. It's been a big night. Uh, the picture of God's judgment, though, just gets even worse as we get further into this chapter. Have a look down at verses 17 and 18. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. The judgment of God is not just about the party being over and there being a bit of a clean-up required the next day. Here the image is of the hunter, who does not miss his target. Let's keep reading, verses 19 and 20. The earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken, the earth staggers like a drunken man, it sways like a hut, its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. 
the judgment of God is a very serious prospect, isn't it? The whole earth will be rocked by God's judgment. And as we move into the last verse of chapter 24, it becomes, well, the last few verses actually, it becomes really clear that this judgment will be so comprehensive that it will reach even beyond the earth. Verses 21 to 23. On that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They'll be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. This comprehensive judgment will reach into the corners of God's universe. And it might be about here that it's worth stopping and asking, how are you feeling? How are you feeling about God with all of this judgment being spoken about, being thrown around at God's command? It's easy to start feeling a bit negative about God because judgment feels like such a bad thing. But we need to stop ourselves there for a moment. God's judgment truly is a terrifying prospect. But God's judgment is not evil and is not wrong. God's judgment is about fixing the problem of evil. Let me try to show you why we need this. Uh, Just this week, you might have seen in the news in the last day or two that another African school has been attacked by rebel forces. A school. That is a place filled with children. And sadly, it's not the first African school to be targeted in this way. These school attacks happen way too frequently in Africa. But don't think that it just happens in Africa. School shootings also occur way too frequently in the US. And there's a scary headline, more mass shootings than days in 2023, the database shows. And equally evil things occur in the country that you call home. The evil in our world demands justice. And justice, as you know, cannot always be delivered by the judicial authorities on earth. God's judgment will right every wrong. If God is to be just and good, then all sin must be judged. God's judgment is both terrible and glorious. The judgment of God is glorious because it reveals God's perfectly righteous character. God's righteousness means that God cannot tolerate the sin that we humans commit against each other. Because God is perfectly righteous, God must judge every sin. But that means God must judge my sin. And it means God must judge your sin as well. And that is why it is very good news for us that God's grace is never far from God's judgment. We're at point two, God's grace is never far from God's judgment. As we start chapter 25, someone is singing in the midst of all this judgment. Have a look, chapter 25, verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you 
I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. It's probably Isaiah himself who is singing at this point. But why is he singing? Why would anyone sing God's praises in the middle of this fierce judgment? Do you know, it happened in chapter 24 as well. Right in the middle of chapter 24, the verses that we skipped over. You're clever enough, you've seen it. Why do we skip over them? Well, right in the middle of that chapter, all about judgment, there were just a few verses that stood out as different. Flick back to chapter 24, verses 14 to 16. Chapter 24, 14 to 16. They lift up their voices, they sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore, in the east... Give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. It reinforces the point that we've just realized judgment is not a completely negative thing because God's character, God's righteous character is gloriously revealed even in the terrors of his judgment. God's judgment is is both terrible and glorious. But one interesting thing that you may have missed in those verses that we just read in the middle of chapter 24 is just who is doing the singing in those verses in the middle of chapter 24. Have another look at verses 14 and 16. Who is singing God's praises in these verses? Have a look with the person next to you. Take 30 seconds. Here's the question. Who is singing God's praises in these verses? Go for it. Who is singing God's praises in these verses? Maybe not who you expected? It's very clear that it is people of other nations, not, not the people of Israel, not the people of Judah. It's people of other nations, enemy nations, who are singing God's praises in these verses. Have a look up on the map on the screen. Here is the, the rough area that we're talking about. Uh, can we circle Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom? We'll back one. The divided kingdom of God's people. Uh, you've got the, the north and the south. And, um, well, when we talk about, uh, when, we, when we talk, verse 14 says, they are shouting about the majesty of the Lord from the west. Well, that's pretty much got to be the Philistine city. Uh, to the west of Israel. And uh, verse 15 says it's the people of the east that are glorifying God. That's the people of Ammon and and Moab. So why are these traditional enemies of God's people singing God's praises in the midst of God's judgment? We can put that down now, thanks. Well, we need to keep reading, don't we, to work this out. In verse 1 of chapter 25, Isaiah is singing because God has done wonderful things. And he says that these things have been planned from long ago. These are plans of old. But what are these plans all about? And why are people from all kinds of different nations praising God for them? Perhaps there's a couple of reasons. Perhaps the first reason is mentioned in verses 2 to 5. Let's have another look. Chapter 25, verses 2 to 5. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. 
For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, as the song of the ruthless is put down. Can you see that verse 3 talks about strong, ruthless nations glorifying and fearing God? Perhaps these superpower nations see what is shown to us in verse 4. God defends the poor and the vulnerable. God cares about the needy and the oppressed and brings them justice. God is on the side of the weak and therefore the strong are right to fear God. Perhaps even these enemy nations will see God's beautiful character of caring about the poor and the oppressed in judgment. And perhaps they can't help but praise God's character, his goodness in doing that. But there seems to be even more going on than that. God's plans from of old suggest that this judgment that God is is bringing about on all the earth is not just a petulant knee-jerk reaction from an exasperated God who's run out of patience. God has planned this judgment from of old. God has been working out this plan of judgment for a long time. And at the same time, God has been working out his plan of salvation. In a sense, you can't understand God's plan of salvation until you understand God's righteous plan of judgment. The two go hand in hand. They are never far away from each other. And God's plans from of old have never been all about judgment. God's plans from of old are also about salvation from that judgment. You know, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is going to sing his own song of praise to God, which reminds us of God's plans for his people which are of old. For Ephesians 1 verses 3 to 4, the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. These plans are seriously old from before the foundation of the world. This plan of God to judge the world and save the people that he has chosen, this plan has been in train since before God created the world. And that is why Isaiah can look, he can look ahead from 700 BC and he can speak about the day when when God will judge the world and bring salvation to those he has blessed with a relationship with Jesus because the plan has been in place. In a sense, what Isaiah is is being shown is the end of the plan. The same plan that's been in place before the creation of the world. And that plan is about much more than just judgment. Have a look at 25 verse 6. 25 verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. God has already planned the victory feast. And notice that the feast 
is for people from all nations. Yes, there will be Aussies there too. They will be the bogan ones at the back yelling, God, 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 oi, 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 or something like that. God has planned this rich victory banquet and the food looks like it will be amazing, but God is eating something else. Verses 7 and 8. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah is promising that when God sends this final and comprehensive judgment upon the world, the salvation that he brings with it will involve the incredible thing of death being swallowed up by life, by God who is life, swallowed up once and for all. Can you imagine the kind of victory that could remove death from our world once and for all? Can you imagine the kind of victory that would give these grieving Ugandans the chance to have to never weep again. Weeping for their children killed in that school massacre. Can you imagine the kind of victory that means they never have to cry again? In verse 8, God promises to wipe away every tear. That is why God is bringing judgment. That is why God is bringing salvation in every corner of his world. And the day on which God will bring about this comprehensive judgment and beautiful salvation has already been written in God's calendar app. It's right there, right now. And it is coming. And it will be terrible. And it will be glorious. And God and his perfectly righteous character will be revealed in both his judgment that is right and his salvation that is right. God will be glorified as he deserves. Isaiah made these startling promises as God revealed this future to him all the way back, around about 700 BC. But you know, you and I have seen so much more than Isaiah could ever dream of seeing because roughly 700 years later, God put the centrepiece of the plan into action by sending his own son into our world. So we're at point three today, our last point, God's grace flows through Jesus Christ. These chapters from Isaiah's prophecy are actually quoted from in the New Testament. The quote is in 1 Corinthians 15. So that is where we are going to go to, for the last section of this talk to look at the way God has fulfilled the promises he made through Isaiah all those years earlier and fulfilled them through the Lord Jesus. So if you turn in your Bibles forward to 1 Corinthians 15, that's where we're going to finish the talk today. 1 Corinthians 15. That'd be great. Now, this chapter begins brilliantly by outlining the gospel that fulfills Isaiah's promises. So let me read it to you, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Did you see the beginnings of judgment? Christ died for our sins. Did you see the beginnings of victory over death? Jesus was raised to life on the third day. And did you see the beginnings of salvation? By this gospel, you are saved if you hold fast to it. In the death of Jesus, God's great end time world judgment day has started, has begun. In the resurrection of Jesus, God's great swallowing up of death has started, has begun. Now, I don't know if you noticed it as I read those verses, but something was a bit odd in those verses. It just feels a little bit weird. Paul lists off the gospel components. And one by one, he kind of lists them off. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus appeared and he was seen and he was seen and he was seen and he was seen and he was seen. And it's kind of like we've almost got caught on loop, isn't it? quite weird. Why is that? The resurrected Lord Jesus was seen by this guy and then these 12 and then that 500 and then this guy and then, and, and, then. Now I know that we are all a bit slow, okay? I, I know, I'll, I'll give that. But does Paul really need to tell us five times that people saw Jesus after the resurrection? Why do you think there are so many references to people who saw? Last chance to have a chat with the person next to you. Enjoy the question. There it is. Why are there so many references to people who saw? Go for it. There are a number of pretty good possibilities, aren't there? There's some pretty good possibilities that you might have jumped to then. It reinforces the importance of Jesus' resurrection, doesn't it? It also provides multiple authentication of the truth that Jesus really did rise from the dead. But I just wonder whether the multiple eyewitnesses also tell us that the swallowing up of death is really hard to believe. Is the defeat of death just so unlikely that it just needs multiple attestations before we might even be willing to believe that it can actually happen? You see, we humans find it so hard to believe that Jesus holds the victory over death and can reverse death, that we look in all kinds of other areas to try and stave off death as much as we can. This guy is a classic example. I don't know if you've seen him in the news lately. He's, uh, he's, he's a lovely guy, of course. Uh, he, he was a tech billionaire. You know, he, he, he put a company together. They, they sold stuff. Then he sold the whole company for 800 million US. And so he's, he's got a bit of coin behind him. Uh, and... He basically is putting that coin and all his spare time into staying young. Uh, his name is Brian Johnson and, well, he employs multiple staff whose sole job is to try to make his 48-year-old body younger. Okay, that's what he's doing. 
And, uh, well, he, he, he's trying to get his metabolic age down. He wants to be like an 18-year-old to his, his best self, apparently. He eats exactly 1,977 calories each day. And he, it's exact. Don't worry. He, it's exactly 1,977. He takes over 100 supplements a day. Ugh. And he does a lot of weird exercises. Um, it gets weirder. He receives blood transfusions from his 18-year-old son. Ugh. And he, in turn, donates some of his blood to his 70-year-old father. Oh, it's just out there. And the list of crazy things he does every day just to try to defy his age and live a little longer just goes on and on. And all of the top scientists that he employs to crunch his personal data tell him that every year of his life, he is only aging the equivalent of nine months. Wow. <laughs> is it worth it? Is it worth all the effort holding death at bay for a couple more years? He wants to live to 130 or maybe 150. Are you kidding me? An extra 30 years? Not your best 30 years either, just quietly, I don't think. And death will still win in the end. You don't want death just to be held off for a few years. You want death to be swallowed up completely. And that is what God has done for you through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Flick over to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, to verses 53 to 56. You might see our little quote from Isaiah come into play. From verse 53... For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The great solution to ageing, is not supplements and blood transfusions. The great solution to ageing is resurrection. Because resurrection is the great swallowing up of death. And that means you and I have a choice about which feast we will live for. Now we've already seen the promises in Isaiah about God's great victory feast for his saved, resurrected people. But this chapter of Corinthians offers you an alternative feast possibility. Early in this chapter, the Apostle Paul talked about the occupational hazards of being an apostle and proclaiming the gospel. It was not an easy life for Paul. He was regularly attacked and beaten for proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to have resurrection life. And in these verses, he plays out what a waste it would all be if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. Come back to verses 30 to 32 for a moment. Verses 30 to 32. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's the alternative feast. Enjoy it now. If there is no resurrection... Enjoy it now. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then don't bother about the gospel. Don't take any hits for telling people about the gospel. In fact, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, 
Live it up, party now. Eat, drink, be merry. Because death is stalking you. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead, you can hope in a much better feast still to come. This whole chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is all about the victory of Jesus over death through resurrection. And as Paul gets to the end of this big chapter about the great effects of Jesus' resurrection for the lives of people like you and me today, he finishes with a small word of exhortation to us. It's there in the last verse of the chapter, verse 58. Therefore, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. If Jesus truly rose from the dead, then victory over death has begun. If Jesus truly rose from the dead, then swallowing up of death has started. And that means you can live a life that will not be cut down to end in the vanity of death. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, your life does not have to end in vain. Resurrection means your life does not have to be in vain. So Paul says in the light of the resurrection, there are two things that we should do. The first thing we should do is cling to the gospel that delivers resurrection. Don't move on from it. Don't hold lightly to it. Don't let it slip out of your life. Paul says be steadfast and immovable in it because that gospel is the key to your resurrection to eternal life. But the second thing the Apostle Paul says, he doesn't just want you to think about yourself in the light of this great resurrection hope. As the Apostle Paul thinks about how the resurrection can change lives all over the world, he encourages God's saved people to abound in what he calls the work of the Lord. What we might call the work of the gospel, the work of helping other people move from death to life through resurrection hope. It doesn't necessarily mean full-time ministry, but it might. But you can do it in... You can do it right now. It just means any opportunity to help people find resurrection life in the gospel. The gospel which offers hope of resurrection to people who are lost in death. Let's pray. Our Father God, we're really thankful to you for this opportunity that the gospel holds out that people who are being stalked by death could have life through the resurrection of Jesus. Father, thank you for showing us the importance of your judgment and the importance of salvation from judgment. Please help us to live our lives in the light of everything you've taught us today. Amen. Uh, that people who are being stalked by death could have life through the resurrection of Jesus. Father, thank you for showing us the importance of your judgment and the importance of salvation from judgment. Please help us to live our lives in the light of everything you've taught us today. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.